Well, listen, we're going to continue. I'm going to lean in a little bit deeper, wade in a little deeper on these tough questions today. Uh, but I, I'll kind of set it up with this. I, I remember a preacher that preached a message on forgiving your enemies, and he had preached a great message. And at the end of the message, ask everybody, you know, how many of you are willing to forgive your enemies? And everybody raised their hand except for one. And it was Sister Jones. And uh, Pastor knew everybody and looked at Sister Jones and said, Sister Jones, you, you're not willing to forgive your enemies? She said, I don't have any. He said, Sister Jones, how old are you? She said, I'm 93. He said, you need to come down here. You got to tell us, tell all these people how you can live to be 93 and not have any enemies. That's a lesson we all need to learn. And she walked up, shuffled up to the microphone, grabbed the microphone and said, I outlived all those hags. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Now listen, <laughs> hey, if you just got to outlive them, that's one way to get there. Just live long. But I choose, I would encourage you to choose to start forgiving people right now. But we've got a lot of division in our contro and controversy in our world today. And so we've got to learn to love each other and get along with each other, right? Just got to learn to do that. And uh, the questions that I'm going to talk to you about today, most of the time when these questions are posed to me, they're posed in this way. Uh, Kendall, what do you think about this? And my answer is, and yours should be as well, it doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what God thinks. So what does the word tell us? What does the Bible say regarding these issues? Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. What does the Bible say? So we're going to look at some hot topics today. Uh, and because truth has become so subjective, meaning one person can say, this is my truth, another person say, this is my truth, and you know, look, there's no my truth, your truth, there's just the truth, and that's the word of God, so we get back to the word. What does the word say? And how many, how many would be willing to admit, there's just some things in this Bible we don't like? How many would be honest enough to admit? Yeah, most of, most everybody here, the rest of you haven't read the Bible, so you don't know. <laughs> But if you read it, you would know there's some things in here that just, just goes completely against my preferences. Well, we all face that. We all deal with that. And so I'm going to deal with some things today, and we're going to see what the Bible has to say. And so that's the way I want to pose these questions. What does the Bible say about, and I'm not going to give you a heads up on what they are, because I don't want anybody walking out on me. Just don't. Stay with me through the whole message. Hear the whole message before you make a judgment on me, because I'm just going to tell you what I believe the Word says. So we're going to start with, what does the Bible say about abortion? Abortion. Nobody wants to talk about this, because nobody wants to get in a conflict. Nobody wants, no, and you know, there's your truth, my truth. That may be good for you. That's not for me. The fact is, we have to go back to what does the word say? And now, some have tried to justify abortions uh, before the unborn child can sustain life outside of the womb and have what they call viability, but the Bible doesn't make that same distinction. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible recognizes that the prenatal phase of life, a baby in the womb, is a child. That's what the Bible calls it. In fact, Luke 131, thou shalt conceive in the womb and bring forth a son. A child in the womb is called a son. Oh, Luke 1.36, she had also conceived a son in her old age. 
There's a son in the womb. It's not a fetus. It's not a clump of cells. It's not just fetal tissue. It's not just unwanted matter. It is a son, a daughter, a child. And, uh, and I know that this is very complicated, and there are many reasons why it's complicated, because we even have laws that are very conflicting in regards to this baby in the womb. And the reason it's conflicting and the reason it's so confusing is because we're trying to legislate immorality. And you can't. You can't make sense out of immorality. What I mean by that is, and this is a horrible illustration, but I could murder. Is there a pregnant woman in the room today? Anybody pregnant? That's, okay, don't tell us if you're not supposed to tell us. Is, is there a pregnant woman? No? No pregnant women? Okay, okay. That's probably best because this would be a horrible uh, illustration. But I could murder a woman with a child and I could be charged double homicide in our court system for killing two people. But that same mother could take that child down to an abortion clinic and terminate its life with no consequences. That's how conflicting this is. And I'm only saying that. I'm not saying that try to guilt or shame anybody. It's just, it's a confusing, uh, conflicting situation we're in. But there's another thing the Bible says. The Bible recognizes that God is active in the creative process of forming new life to abort a pregnancy is to abort the work that God is doing. God's in the process right here, the active creative process of forming new life. Genesis 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. God is the one who opens the womb. Look at the next scripture. In Job, did not he who made me in the womb make them? In Timothy, or Isaiah, uh, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Next is it Psalm, Psalms 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together. When I was in my mother's womb, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It's clear that God is in the creative process of forming new life in the womb. It's not our right to interfere with what God is doing. Number three, the Bible recognizes that God has plans for the unborn child. Only he knows the potential of this new life. Only God knows that potential. It's not for us to determine the value of this life or the plan of this life. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I sanctify you, I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Did you know that God had a plan for your life even before you were born? So who are we to step in and say the plans are not valuable enough to protect? There are plenty of handicapped children that have been born into families that have brought them wonderful, wonderful memories, a lot of fun and excitement, a lot of joy, immeasurable joy, challenges and difficulties, and sure, yeah. But every one of us bring challenges to our families. Every one of us, healthy children, bring a lot of challenge. There's none of us that are escape bringing challenge to our families. We do. So the value of life is not determined by how much of a convenience or inconvenience you are. The value of life, the sanctity of life, is priceless because we're made in the image of God. In fact, Iceland boasts that they have basically cured Down syndrome, and the reason they have is because nearly 100% of the, 
of women who pre-screen their pregnancy and determine that the child has Down syndrome terminate their pregnancy. That's not to be celebrated. That's not worthy of celebration. That's shameful. Number four, the Bible recognizes that God is sovereign in all things, including the quality of life of the unborn child. This is big. Because with the technology that we have, pre-screening, you can determine if a child has a defect of some kind. And there are many people that say, well, if it's not a perfectly healthy child, then it's not worthy of life. So we'll take its life. However, Exodus 4.11 says, who, who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? So who are we to step in and say, well, I know better than God. They, they, this child is blind, so it's not worthy of having life. Who says that? This child is missing a limb. Who, who says they're not worthy of life? In fact, next month, you're going to hear one of my good friends, Gabriel Nahara, who was born without arms. His legs were deformed. The doctor said he probably wouldn't live through the night. His parents gave him up for adoption. I met him, I don't know, 20 years ago. Had him come here and speak a few years back. He's going to be with us in November. By all reason, this would have been the life to abort, to terminate the pregnancy. But Gabriel, his, his legs are about this short. He walks, his feet are twisted upside down. He walks on the top of his feet. He has no arms. I called him here not too long ago and said, hey, would you come up and be my guest in November? He says, sure, I'll drive up. He could drive, he could fly. He lives in his own apartment. He, does his, he cooks his own meals. He washes his own clothes. He irons his own clothes. He does everything with his feet. He is amazing. Who says his life does not have value? God says it has value. We, because maybe it's inconvenience, it's going to take us a little more time to raise a child, a little more difficult. We think that we know better. No, we don't know better. We can't do that. That's, that's not our right. In fact, the elephant in the room when it comes to children is not evidence. The elephant in the room is morality and accountability. People don't want others imposing their will and their morality on themselves. They want the opportunity to make their own decisions and choose their own path. And listen, while I am an advocate for freedom, you know that. I'm an advocate for freedom. My body, my choice does not fly when there's another body inside your body. A, a separate DNA that deserves the right to life. Everything changes when there's another body inside the body. So the argument that a child can't sustain life uh, without dependency upon another, therefore it doesn't have the right to life, is not a sensible argument because every single one of us, once we were born, depended on somebody else for life. If somebody hadn't picked you up, you would have died when you were born. The sick and the elderly depend on somebody else to continue to live. So are we saying that they don't have the right to live because they depend on somebody else to feed them, somebody else to care for them? It's not a sensible argument. But listen, here's where it gets really difficult. What about a threat to the mother's life? What about rape and incest? Now, here's where it goes, and I want you to listen to me very carefully, because I want everybody to know that 
this, anything I'm going to be talking about today is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace, there's mercy, there's love for every single person. None of these are situations that anybody wants to be in. But we often find ourselves, we find ourselves in these situations. But we shouldn't make a decision for all pregnancies based on a few exceptions. Frank Turek with crossexamine.org says that uh, 93% of uh, abortions are convenience-based abortions. Charlie Kirk, Turning Point USA, said 99%. So somewhere between 93 and 99% convenience-based. So we're not talking about anywhere near the majority of pregnancies. We're talking about a very small percentage that actually fall in the category of threat to a mother's life or rape or incest. But here's what happens. Everybody knows this, but they can stop the argument by throwing out the threat to a mother's life or the rape scenario. And these are terrible, they're tragic situations. But if you say, yes, that young woman should carry the child of a rape, then you're uncompassionate, insensitive, and you will be shamed. Or if you say, I'm pro-life except for rape or incest, then you're a hypocrite because you're not really pro-life. So they put you in a corner to silence you. And what we need is, we need to not be silenced. We need to have conversations because of advances in medical science. It's very rare when a mother's life is threatened. But should that develop, then we pray for God's healing. If that doesn't come, then we seek a pro-life doctor who can give advice and uh, directive and to help. And, uh, and, and we ask for guidance in that. These are conversations to have. But I can tell you this. It's real easy to, to say, oh, this was a tragic conception. It was rape. No child or no young woman should have to carry that child. Andre, come here. Come up here on the stage. Would you grab that microphone for me right over there, please? Thank you. Andre? Tell me your story. Because this is, this is one of our people. This is Freedom Family. This is not some story out there in another country that you've never heard about. This is Freedom Family. When my, uh, when my mother was 15 years old, she was a sophomore in high school, uh, and she was raped. She was raped, and uh, my grandmother, being the God-fearing grandmother that she was, um, they never thought twice to abort me. They never thought twice. Um, I, I, I didn't let him know until after the service. Uh, just, I just wanted that weight to be lifted off of my shoulders and uh, God can take something that is so difficult and so ugly at the time and so broken and he can make it beautiful. He really can. So um, yeah, be encouraged. Be encouraged for sure. So. Come on, man. Now listen. When Andre came up to me after the last service, I just wanted you to know. I said, would you stay around for the next service? And I was wanting to watch football, so honestly, I was. <laughs> but this was more important, more important because somebody needs to know that, yes, God can take a tragic situation and make something beautiful out of it if we'll just give him the opportunity. 
Because everybody else would have said, your life is not valuable. But we are better because of you, Andre. And I'm glad you had a God-fearing grandmother that said, we're going we're gonna to give this child a life. We're better because of it. Come on, give Andre a great big hand. Will you? Thank you. I know God can turn things around, and that's just what we have to give him the opportunity to do. Uh, so let's lean into the next tough question, and thank you, Andre. The next tough question is, what about, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Again, I know nobody wants to talk about abortion. Nobody wants to talk about homosexuality. But in some people's mind, being homosexual is as much out of their control as the color of their skin or their height. But the problem is, the Bible clearly and consistently declares that homosexual activity is a sin. And there's got to be a clear distinction between homosexual activity and homosexual tendency. Two different things. One is an active sin. One is a passive condition of being tempted. And there's no sin in being tempted. But here's what the Bible says. Let me just give you a few scriptures real quick because I'm sure you've heard alternatives. But Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for uh, those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The scripture teaches that homosexuality is a result of denying and disobeying God. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And in 1 Timothy 1.10, it says the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, here's where I believe there's got to be a grace for every single person. If people are born with a tendency towards homosexuality, uh, I believe that's just as normal as somebody who may be born with a tendency towards lying or theft or fits of rage or addictive behavior. We're born into sin, and I think everybody is born with some type of dysfunction. So I'm not arguing whether somebody may feel like they're born with a certain tendency or not. That's not even an argument to have. It's been the argument for a long time, but it's not even really an argument to have. Because no matter what our attractions are, whether it's for somebody else's belongings, somebody else's wife, the same sex, or you deal with fits of rage, whatever those attractions are, we cannot continue to define ourselves by the very sins that crucified Jesus and at the same time assume that we're right with God. You've got to draw a distinction at some point. In fact, even the Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthians and he gave them a list of sins and among those lists were homosexuality, but he reminded them that they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was saying, some of y'all live this way, but you've been washed and you've been saved. So people can change. We sang that song. There's a miracle working God. He can change all of us. He can stop the liars and, the, and the, the thieves and he can stop the adulterers and he can stop the homosexuals. He can stop all of us. We all have some dysfunction. The people argue this. They argue that Jesus never actually spoke against homosexuality, but he did speak against sexual immorality, which covers all sex outside of marriage. 
He didn't mention felony home invasion either, but he did mention theft. He didn't mention rape. Does that mean rape is allowable? No, of course not. So that argument from silence is not a sensible argument. But Jesus did say in Matthew 19 that marriage is between a man and a woman. So listen, we're all born with certain sinful tendencies. That's the reason why we must be born again. That's the reason. So I don't care what you were born with. We all need to be born again. Let me lean in just a little bit more. What does the Bible say about transgenderism? Oh, you weren't ready for all this today, were you? I thought I might as well just get all of them in one Sunday here. Okay, I got to hurry. Okay, look, some would argue that the Bible says nothing about this explosion of transgenderism in our Western culture today. I mean, there's no scripture that says thou shalt not transition from a male to a female. I get that. But the Bible also uh, doesn't talk explicitly about gun violence or anorexia or waterboarding or fossil fuels or vaccines. Uh, so we shouldn't expect the Bible to speak in 21st century terms to every 21st century problem. But it hardly means that the Bible does not give us clear guidance on how to make sense out of this transgender moment that we're in right now. We need to be thinking. We need to be praying. We need to be loving. We need to be walking gently through this uh, as we connect with people who feel like their psychological identity as a male or female contradicts with their assigned biological sex. Uh, we know it's complex, but what does the Bible say? The Bible does tell us this, that in Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Uh, the question is not whether feelings exist. I get it. Somebody may feel like they would express themselves or be more faithful to their true self by expressing themselves as a different sex. I, I say I get it. I, I, I understand it. I understand that. But the question is not whether we feel that way or not or people feel that way. The question is whether that feeling is greater or equal to God's plan and God's design for man and woman. You say, but what, what do we do with that? How does somebody walk it out? Well, listen, look at this. Next slide, please. We understand following Christ means dying to ourselves, right? Matthew 16, 24. We know there are plenty of things we have to die to. I said earlier, there are plenty of things in this scripture that I just don't like. I'd rather live a different way. But we all have to die to ourselves. We all know that we have to renew our minds, Romans 12, 2. So whatever way we're thinking, we have to think the way of the word. And then we no longer walk according to the way we used to, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. So being true to ourselves is always a false choice when it means going against God's word. You can't go against God's word and still be okay with God. In fact, Dr. Paul McHugh of John Hopkins University he was the director of the psychiatry department there, said that their hospital stopped doing transgender sex reassignment surgeries because he said that the cure was worse than the disease, meaning the sex reassignment ended up being worse for the individual than the challenge of living uh, in their skin in a different way. He compared transgenderism to that of anorexia. He said it's psychological uh, he said, uh, uh, somebody who's anorexic looks in the mirror and sees themselves as heavy, sees themselves as obese, overweight, yet they're only 85 pounds and in need of putting on weight. 
So there's a mental aspect to this, but there's a physical aspect to this as well. And here's what, it, what we have to realize, that this has become such a political issue that no one is actually following the science on it. We all talk about science. But in 1972, here's what happened. In 1972, the courts were lobbied to no longer classify homosexuality as a psychological disorder. So this was in a lot of our lifetimes. But then what they did is they moved from that onto gender identity, can't be classified as a psychological disorder. But no sooner had they declassified it as a mental illness or psychological disorder, they started to develop new terminology that were floated in the court of public opinion, like homophobic and transphobic. So here's what happened. One day, it changed from being a mental illness, psychological disorder, to now anybody opposing that has a psychological disorder. You're transphobic. Here's what, this is a very strategic and demonic spiritual warfare against the church. Make no mistake about it, they want our Christian worldview to be considered as a psychological disorder. That's the way they want to redefine and position it. That's why there's a cancel culture, to silence our voices. Now, the issues are more emotional and political than intellectual and spiritual. So I would say this, love people with all of your heart. At all cost, love people. Because what you will find a lot of the time and I can't speak for every situation, but what you will find a lot of the time, if you will build a relationship and have a conversation with anybody who's battled with abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, you will find many times somebody who has been hurt. They've been hurt by the church. In fact, they have run harder from the church because of the way they were treated in the church. I'm not scolding the church. I'm just, I'm just saying that we need to do a better job of loving people and explaining the word. And even if they don't come into alignment with the word, keep loving. We're not here to beat people up. We're not here to push people away. We need to keep loving people. Okay, here's the last one. And LA, if you come back up here, here's my last question for today. What does the Bible say about critical race theory? Abortion, homosexuality, transgender, Critical race theory, oh man, could I have hotter topics today? It'll be easier next week, I promise, if you come back. Uh, Okay, you're in a conversation and somebody says, since God cares about the oppressed, then Christians should embrace critical race theory because CRT is trying to eliminate oppression. So how do we respond to that? Well, critical race theory is our culture's attempt to explain and confront uh, power structures. Some Christians have embraced it. Uh, well, what, what actually is it? To understand critical race theory, or CRT, and boy, this is all in, this is at the city council meetings, the school board meetings. This is, this is taking place everywhere. You know, it's being implemented in some public education systems and fought against in others. What, what is it? If you don't really completely understand it, I'm going to explain it just quickly and how we need to respond as Christians and how does it line up 
with Christianity. You need to understand this. Because again, it's, it, they would like to silence us by creating an argument that we can't really have. But first of all, everyone can be divided, according to critical race theory, everybody can be divided into two categories, those who have power and those that don't. So you either have power or you don't. And then the second uh, thing to understand is that those who have power are considered oppressors over those who don't have power. So everybody can be in two categories, those who have power, those who don't. And then those who have power are oppressing those who don't. So how do we know who the oppressed are and who the oppressors are? Well, according to CRT, the categories of oppressor or the oppressed are based on your group identity, not your individual, but your group identity, things like race and gender and religion and immigration status, income, sexual orientation. Uh, all of these things determine whether you're one of the oppressed or one of the oppressors. And of course, somebody might be a part of uh, both groups. You could be an oppressor and an oppressed, and that's when we bring in this term called intersectionality, where you two different things intersect. And so intersectionality, it, speaks, it seeks to measure levels of oppression. So you could be disabled, you could, have, you could be a minority race, or your sexual orientation, or your gender identity, or your nationality. You, all those things determine whether how oppressed you really are. And based on how many of these groups you identify with, what it does is it determines your moral authority. If you're a part of more of these groups, you have more moral authority. What does that mean? Your voice has more weight. You've heard people say this. We hear this with the abortion argument. Men don't have a right to speak up for women because you're a man. You don't understand this. You have no moral authority because you're not part of this group. We hear it. We, you can't speak to this. You're not an immigrant. You're just a white man born in America. You don't know. Well, okay, so I, I can have facts. I can have truth, but it doesn't, I don't have any moral authority because of my race and because of my gender. So how many of these groups you're a part of determines your moral authority, and the more oppressed you are, then the less responsibility you have for your actions perfect example. We watched a lot of cities go up in flames, businesses looted, buildings burned down, no accountability because they were part of the oppressed group. And listen, and a lot of those people that were doing that, they were of all types of races. That wasn't a particular race. There were a lot of blacks, a lot of whites, a lot of Hispanics, and there were a lot of different people in there. So it's not a race thing there. It's just an oppressed group. They're part of an oppressed group. We've watched that happen. So, some people claim since Jesus cares about oppression, CRT and intersectionality should be embraced by Christians. But there are three things that are different about critical race theory and Christianity. Number one, critical theory offers a different view of humanity than Christianity. Critical theory describes and defines humanity based upon your gender, based upon your race, based upon your economic status, based upon all of these things. You know what? Christianity says we're all equal. We're all, we're all equal before God. You're, you're created equal. You're equally valuable. You're equally guilty of sin, equally deserving of punishment, but equally able to find grace and mercy in Jesus. Every one of us. There's a big difference there. 
So Christianity brings us all together while CRT divides us all. The second point is that critical race theory offers a different view of sin. Different view of humanity, different view of sin. Christianity says that sin is anything that violates God's plan, His design for our life. And we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. CRT, it says that uh, when we choose to oppress, that is what is sin. Oppression is sin. Well, because CRT gets the problem wrong, they also get the solution wrong. And here's the third point. Critical race theory offers a different view of salvation than Christianity. Because we're all equally guilty of sin, salvation can be found through Jesus Christ. Repentance, Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity believes. CRT teaches that oppressors are guilty, oppressed or not. So salvation is not found through repentance, but in social liberation here and now through activism. So CRT has a completely different view of humanity, a completely different view of sin, and a completely different view of salvation. Now, I know that what Satan would love to do is to use something like CRT or the topic of transgender, the topic of homosexuality, the topic of abortion, to divide in order to conquer. That's what he would love to do. I recognize that every one of these topics are sensitive, they're challenging, but I look around this room and I see people from all different categories that could separate us. But you know what we've chosen? To allow it to unite us. Our diversity is our greatest strength. It's not what divides us, it's what unites us. People ask me, who's your target audience? People who love diversity. Plain and simple. That's my target audience. I don't care what race you are. I don't care whether you're born in America or came here as an immigrant. Do you love diversity? Do you welcome diversity? Will you embrace diversity? I look over and I see Andre, a product of a terrible, tragic situation that people took the road of inconvenience but brought a godly man into this earth and made this church better because of it. I look at Cameron and Stephanie and your precious Charlotte. Challenging? Yeah. But I know the Brooks wouldn't trade one single minute with that precious child for anything in the world. See, what the enemy wants to do is to take all these little things that seem so imperfect and pit us against one another. And we as a church can't allow that to happen. We realize that we live in difficult times. We realize that we all have friends, co-workers, neighbors, classmates that are wrestling with some of these subjects that I've talked about today. 
It doesn't mean we run from them and hide. It means you lean into them and you build a relationship and have a conversation based on the word of God. But at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't accept it, you don't discard them as a friend. You keep loving them. And when I got people in my life and Kelly and Sabrina running our Celebrate Recovery, they'll tell you there's plenty of people. They've tried to talk out of addiction and it hasn't worked yet, but they just keep on leaning in and keep on loving. There's people with all kinds of challenges. That's why the church is here. That's why we exist. It's not a country club for perfect people. It's a hospital for a bunch of messed up, screwed up people to come in and find Jesus. That's what we're here for. And if you're battling with anything that I've shared with today, any of these topics, you're loved here. You've had an abortion, you're loved here. None of the things I've talked about are the unpardonable sin. There's forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ for anything. You just got to ask him for it. And you know what? If you're worried about whether there is a church that would accept you the way you are, if you're worried about a church that will walk this journey with you, if you're worried about exposing your, your journey with others and that that would get you kicked out, you, you have you have underestimated this church body. You've underestimated the people that you're sitting next to. We've seen those miracles happen. We've seen cancer healed, addiction broken, families reunited, prodigals come home. We've seen it all because of Jesus Christ. And he can do it in each and every one of us. All we have to do is give him the opportunity to do it. So come on, would you stand to your feet all over this place? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not going to ask you to respond physically in any way. But I want you to know today you are loved. You are loved in this house. And if you've got some hurts and some pains and challenges from the past, you are loved in this house. If you've been critical of other people, you're loved in this house. But you need to start loving people rather than criticizing people. And if you've, been, if you've continued to fall in sin, you need to bring that to the altar and give it to Jesus. We all need work in our lives, right? So we come to Jesus because he's the wonder-working, miracle-working power that we need in our lives. So Father, I pray today for every person here today and as we lift up our voices in this final song, I pray that we would realize that with you, anything is possible. Our lives can be changed. Our hearts can be put back together. You can heal. You can restore. You can make new for each and every one of us. You can take tragic situations that lead, that look like they, they, there's no way out and you can make something beautiful just like in Andre's case. And so God, I'm asking you, Stir up a, a hope, stir up a promise, stir up something inside every one of us that would trust you to work through our most difficult circumstances. And we'll give you all the glory when it's said and done. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said amen. <laughs>